I've never met a person who didn't have room for growth. And the most scary people are the people who refuse to get help, the people who refuse to get prayer, the people who never apologize. So I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to ever prop up a person, a leader, anyone who is just, look at how I do it and do it my way. In a world that often feels fragmented and disconnected, how can we navigate our digital and spiritual lives with authenticity and grace? Welcome to Seek Go Create, where today's guest, Doug Bursch, brings his unique perspective as a writer, minister, and speaker, committed to living by the Spirit and exploring the intersection of faith, community, and social media. Doug, author of Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us, and what we can do about it. I just finished reading half of that, really enjoyed it. And his other book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. I love the thought of that. I need to circle back and read that. He has spent 24 years pastoring and has been the voice behind a radio show and the Fairly Spiritual Show podcast. His journey seems to be one of seeking harmony between his spiritual calling and his daily life. Doug, welcome to Seek, Go, Create. Well, hey, thanks for having me on. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, I think this is going to be interesting. We were, right before we hit record, we were kind of like going, so what are we doing here? What are we talking about? And so <laughs> I think this is going to be a nice, a free-flowing conversation. But let's do something uh, It's not really pretending. Doug, let's just say we just meet and I'm doing this idle chit-chat question where I say, Doug, by the way, what do you do? How do you respond when someone asks you at this season stage of your life what you do? <laughs> I, if we just met, I'd probably try to change the topic or the subject. Pastoring for 24 years, there's some people that the moment you say you're a pastor, they, depending upon their experience of the church, they just shut up and that's the last you get of it. In fact, I was uh, on a fishing boat. It was one of those where they take you out to fish for some, I don't know, like you drop a line and you catch fish and it doesn't seem fair to the fish, but. There was a guy next to me swearing the whole time, just nonstop, like creative swearer, just brilliant swearer. And like an hour into our time, he goes, so what do you do? <laughs> and I'm like, and I didn't want to say it. I was just, I'm a pastor. And then you could just see his eyes like roll back. Like he was trying to think of all the conversations he had. He just stops and he goes, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I was a pastor for 24 years. I'm not that right now. I'm in between that. I'm trying to figure out what to do. I write books. I like to talk about hope. Right now I'm writing fiction, a creative novel. I do a bunch of things and I'm not content with any of them. So uh, for me, that's kind of what I do. Ministry, reconciliation is a big issue for me that whatever I talk about is how do we bring people together? How do we actually find a way, not in a simplistic way, but how do we heal the divides? How do we enter into, as the scripture talks about the ministry of reconciliation, where the dividing walls of hostility are torn down and we can find true community around important things. Have, has that always been your mantra, that reconciliation, or is that something you've kind of evolved into over time? Well, it's interesting. I think sometimes writers overcompensate in that they write for an area they might struggle with. So they think, well, if I write a book, maybe it'll solve the problem. I think pastors do that. Counselors, helpers do that. I'm a middle child. There was five kids in our family. I'm the middle child. And even as a middle child, I wanted everyone to get along. And so that concept, and it's not always been a positive thing where 
not liking conflict, wanting everybody to get along, wanting to try to find unity. I think that was in my DNA. There's our, whether it was the nurture or the nature, right? And uh, so I've always pursued that. And it might've come even out of my own discomfort, not enjoying being in divided rooms. It might not even have been a really, oh, the Lord has told me to do this. It's more, how do I get these jerks to stop being jerky to each other? So now my family wasn't like that. It was a good family, but you got five kids and seven people. There's a certain level of chaos. So I, from earliest on, and then looking back, I realized, wow, whatever I write about, I tend to keep going to these themes. Uh, so I'm kind of discovering who I am as I write, as I preach and teach. Is it, as you moved into ministry, or, let's do a little bit of background real quick here, because you and I haven't okay. really spent a lot of time around each other. I want to say this too. I want to go ahead and get this out so that people understand this. I was drawn to you just from interacting or not really interacting, just reading some of the things you did on, I guess we call it X now, the platform formerly yeah. known as Twitter. I feel like we need to say that. And, uh, you know, just the short burst, sort of pithy, sometimes a little bit humor. It's okay to say that humor. Is it okay to say yes, a humor. little bit of right. sarcasm? Is sarcasm okay? Do you have a little bit of that? I do. I've got some a lot of sarcasm. Okay. Some people don't like to be called that. And I'm like going, I actually embrace it probably more than I should, because I'm not sure that it always lines up with reconciliation just as a something there. Sometimes sarcasm can cause issues there. At least it does for me. Maybe not you. Maybe you've mastered that. Uh, but I was drawn to that just because that seems to be a place that you, uh, you get a lot of information out now. And so I'm just setting that up to say, that's what drew me to you. And I could also tell that I think we had some, maybe some differing viewpoints, but we were moving in a similar direction, which I like the thought of that. Okay. So that hmm. I think kind of a, maybe a little bit of a foundation for our conversation, but tell me a little bit about kind of, I don't want to know the, not necessarily the growing up years, but how does someone go into ministry or how did, what's your story for going mm -hmm. into ministry? Well, uh, I was born in a log cabin, which no, I won't go back that far. Uh, by the way, with sarcasm, this will help some people like sarcasm just isn't right. Cause it's lying or something. Sarcasm, like any other uh, form of communication, it depends on the motivation. Some people use sarcasm as a way to tear people down in a humorous way. And I think that's the kind of sarcasm we would say we don't like, where it's a passive aggressive way to tell someone, say something mean, but oh, it's just a joke. I'm just being sarcastic. Most of my sarcasm is more uh, self-effacing and you know, I'm talking about what I've done wrong. And if I'm going to be sarcastic, it's probably going to be with people in power who could probably take it. Somebody who's kind of a know-it-all, who's used to telling everybody things. And I might say, boy, you certainly have an opinion there. Just something like that. Yeah, let me uh, pause you there. Hold on one second. Let me pause you. But do you use it because you triggered something in me? Do you also use it as a relatability thing? You mentioned the self-effacing, which I realize that I do yeah. that at times too. It's kind of it, a lot of it's directed at me, and I do similar like what you just mentioned. But do you perceive it as being something that helps you? You think relate to other people better? Yeah, it's a part of who I am. It's not like I'm going to be humorous now. It's just how I am. But humor has a way of opening doors. I've found, I've often defined some of the stuff I do as evangelistic and not that I, you know, have everybody raise their hand to give their life to Christ. But I come in and maybe say difficult things, but I say it in a way that people are open to it. 
And so there is a part of that. Sometimes people assume humor means you're not serious about what you're talking about. But what I've found is if you take enough effort to get someone to laugh at themselves, then when you come in and you say something like, you know, we need to really look at how we're living, they're more willing to receive that because you've done that effort. So that's a big thing for me because we all do that. We do it with the people we love, or at least people with sense of humor do this, where you tease a spouse who might be getting a little annoyed, and it's a way to tell them, hey, your attitude's kind of not the best right now. So when we love people, sometimes we joke with them to get them to laugh a little bit. We do that with our kids, right? You seem to be a little grumpy today. And then when they acknowledge that, then it's a way to also say, maybe we should turn our attitude in a different direction. So Humor, also humor for insecurities. I know for me, uh, struggling to fit in as a kid, uh, humor gets you at the table, right? So I could joke about things. I was a Christian kid, always, I, since I was two, I gave my life to Christ. I said yes to Jesus, and I never stopped saying yes. So that's my testimony. And, and there's no real backsliding testimonies either. I've always loved Jesus. Now, like any two-year-old who grew up in an evangel evangelical culture. I gave my life to Christ over and over again, just in case it didn't stick. The person would come into town and, oh, okay, you know, I'll raise my hand again for Jesus. But, but being a Christian kid and going through the public schools, and I wasn't like the nerd kid. I was actively involved in things and sports, but I always felt like an outsider. And so humor is a great way, right? You can just, I'm a Pentecostal in the sense of believe the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit worked in, in the Bible, the Holy Spirit works today. So people who are worried about Pentecostals, what's the first joke I'll do? I'll say something like, don't worry, I didn't bring my snake. I'm not going to be handling snakes or something like that. And then they pull back a little bit, but I'm still the Pentecostal. So I think I use it that way as well. Cut them off at the pass, what they're already thinking about me, to say it before they say it. So then we know what the concerns are and maybe how to move forward. Yeah, the reason I didn't I talk at all about how I became a pastor, did I? But you, I think you I, set me off in that. Yeah, we're, I did. We're about to go back that direction, <laughs> but I, it, I, I didn't grow up around a church. I grew up in the deep South, though, which would tell mm. you a good bit about me. And we popped in and out of the Baptist church every once in a while, and uh, and then later Pentecostal is where I guess came back or came to or whatever. I don't mm. know, but. I like the same thing you said. I like the joking about some of the raising of the hands. And uh, I also went to churches when we started going more that were multicultural, which it's fascinating as someone who's white, especially in the deep South, and you're allowed or get to go to churches where there's color and people really do worship differently. You know, we can say, oh yeah, we're all the same. No, we're not. We're not. We're different. Mm -hmm. When Effie takes off running around the church, you got to get out of the way or you're going to get mowed down. And so we laugh and joke about that. But, but so, all right. So now let's get, we could, by the way, we could talk forever on humor because to me, any joke, like this is the problem with social media, it's general. And, and usually we're content driven versus relationship driven. So if you have a relationship with someone and let's say you're in that multicultural church, you can make jokes about cultural differences, racial differences. If you're friends, if not, and again, why is this person telling this joke? Well, they, they're a racist, you know, or we don't know. And that's what the hard part is we sometimes don't even take the time to know that through social media. We're uniting immediately through just ideology or the content there. But when you have a relationship with someone, you put it in that context. And that's why, to me, humor can be really dangerous, right? Because you're reading the room. Like, I, I preach all kinds of different churches and... If the pastor is a very sincere person, 
and doesn't have really a strong sense of humor, the congregation is just like that pastor. So I tell a joke in that room and they just stare at me. Or I say, like, I would do, okay, I'd do this. I'd say, uh, before I start preaching, I want to tell you 10 things I hate about your pastor. Let's take a short break from the show. Think about the leader you are today and the leader you want to become. Hello, I'm Tim Winders, your guide to personal and professional transformation. In my executive coaching sessions, we dive deep into what it means to be a truly impactful leader, one who leads not just with skills, but with vision and faith. Through my coaching, leaders have redefined their approach, achieving not just success, but also purpose and joy in their work. Are you ready for this kind of transformation? Let's explore your potential together. Schedule your free discovery coaching call at timwinders.com forward slash coaching. Your leadership journey is just beginning. Now back to Seek Go Create. Now, what I'm going to do is make fun of myself. This is, nothing's going to be negative, but people without a sense of humor immediately, what? How can you? And what I'll say is your pastor is interesting. He makes me look boring. Something like that. That makes, you know, he's so kind and I'm not as kind. But man, can you tell if you should stop using humor and those first jokes? Um, if you got a guy who laughs at everything, you're like, the congregation's going to be a riot. I can just joke and they'll have a blast. Anyway, humor works that way. Ministry for me is probably the opposite than you. Like I grew up in a church, I mean, in Christian community, and the home was more sacred than the church. So to me, the most spiritual man I ever met is my father. And my father's a public school teacher. And he's really been my pastor. So when I went to church, church was more like confirming or not confirming what was going on at home. And in fact, if I'd gone to a church and the experience was just terrible and they called that Christianity, I wouldn't believe them because I know what Christianity is. I found it in my home. And so that's really impacted how I minister to people because I actually minister to a lot of people who've been hurt by the church. And that's helped me learn something because for many of those people, that is all of it. That's the expression. They found Christ. They grew in Christ. They were deeply wounded by people. And so it's so hard to detangle those things. For me, it is easier to detangle my faith from the church. And so I've also worked a lot on trying to reform the church. I feel very unsuccessfully doing that. But that's been my heart, how we talk, how we communicate. And then as I've grown older, and the internet's helped me with this, seeing more problems and hurts and seeing the extreme abuse that I was not aware of, it's given me a much greater sensitivity to why some people will never step in a church again and shouldn't because of the wounds that they face. They need community at some level. But I take seriously that if you've been that wounded by people who should love you, that there's a reason you, when you, someone says, do you go to church, you snarl at them and say, I would never step through those doors again. I, I think there's, all right, I like where this is going because, because I think this is going to be helpful for me. And I think this is helpful for the conversation. One of the things that I have found, Doug, is that I have had this very similar, I don't even know if mission is the right word, but times what we call the church, and I want to use that term, I want to use it that way instead of a lot of people when you, when all of a sudden you mention the word church, just like when you start making jokes about their pastor, they get wide-eyed and they go, oh my gosh, blasphemy, things like that. And I want to say this, when I'm making these comments, it's about 
these buildings and these places that we have written the word church on the outside of it, they, they may be the church. I don't know if they are or not, but I've been on kind of a mission because it really pisses me off what I see going on right now. And it really ticks me off because I've seen time and time again, you know, someone would say, oh, well, Tim, it sounds like you've been through church, church. Maybe I have. I don't really, I'm not really wired to, I don't want to say I'm not wired to feel that. If I've been through it, that doesn't sound right either. But it, I was saved in a business setting. I'll go ahead and get this out there so you understand it. The people that have listened in know I went in and out of a church, but that wasn't going to take for me because I wasn't attracted to it. They didn't speak my language. I didn't like the mamby-pamby pastor speaking from the front or anything. I'm sure that wasn't you or anything, but you know, I didn't like any of that. I'm and pretty so mamby-pamby. Yeah. And so I, I was saved in a business setting at one of these MLM functions that many people call a cult. And so that's where I was. That's where I met Jesus, and that, that was my paradigm. I want to ask big picture question, and then maybe we'll drill down even more. Do we have the structure right? Is there something wrong with the way we're structuring what we call the church in first world Americanized culture? Well, I would say yes, but that'll always be the case. And, and okay. I, my first book, The Community of God, I talk about that we have this concept of utopia. And utopia literally means not a place. If you look at the word, it doesn't exist. Utopia is not no such place. I think that's what it means. And we have these ideas of what we want the church to be. And I, again, I'm not trying to minimize churches that should be shut down, closed, and bulldozed over because of the harm they've done. So I'm not just saying, hey, you just got to deal with hurts and people are messy. And I think I get what you're talking about. There's some incredibly, not just in some churches, but in I think in even whole denominational settings, that are really toxic, some basic foundations, power dynamics that are just terrible. I talk a lot about this in the community of God, which is interesting. This is before a lot of the stuff has more come out and united in all the documentaries we see that are out there. But uh, I, I think at some level, I believe this to be true. We are formed in community. Christians, uh, the Bible doesn't t start with the individual first and then go to the community. It's always both. In fact, if there was only one person on earth, you ever hear the evangelists say that? If there's only one person on earth, Christ would have died for you. I think if there was only one person on earth, God would have created another person. Because for us to understand God, God at some level is community. And don't worry, I'm not some sort of wacko here. I have Trinitarian uh, theology. I was on the doctrine committee for a denomination I used to be in. I was the lead reviser of their doctrine book. So I'm doctrinally sound in this, at least in, in their consideration. But God is community, three persons in one. This mystery of the Trinity, one God, three persons. So God is relationship. God is community. And at some level, for us to understand the community of God, we need to be in some sort of relationship. It's different than it is with our concept of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the Bible doesn't back away from that, that it's not good for us to be alone. We're supposed to be in community, dependent upon each other. In fact, much of why Jesus ministered in community, that's how we're supposed to minister. We'll say, well, he had disciples because he was making, you know, Jesus's and he's going to help them and then they're going to do what he does. That's not why Jesus had disciples. Jesus had disciples because it would have been sin for him to minister alone. No human is supposed to minister alone. So that's the part where I challenge people who've been hurt by the church. Regardless of the structural concept of the church, we need to be in community. Now, that can be, what, uh, three people at your house. is To me, 
at some level where you're together, you're focusing on Jesus, focusing on the gospel, and maybe you disagree with some of these things. Well, whatever you believe theologically, you're coming together and you're focusing in on that, and then people can feed into your life and you can feed into theirs. Now, I tend to think the group needs to be big enough that you can be annoyed by people and small enough that you can know people. Because if you just structure stuff around, you know, the people you like, I don't know if you're really going to get the heart of God with concepts of grace and love. And this is what I see with some of the megachurch people. They've been hurt by megachurches. So they take the friends that they got at the megachurch and then they hive off and they have this safe, wonderful community where they can talk about what's wrong with that megachurch. That's a part of it. But you got to open that group to the annoying person, to the person who has mental health issues, to the poor person who needs help, or the rich person that's a little arrogant. You got to find a way to tell them it's not all about money. So that's the kind of stuff I talk with. As far as the structures of our church, every structure becomes corrupted with power and people. And I tend to be very cynical in that sense. I've had this idea that I was going to change structures. Uh, every time I've tried it, it hasn't gone very well. But I think I'm going to stand before the Lord like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, I'm not going to bow down. I, I think you'll rescue me, but even if you don't, I'm not going to bow down to those structures and systems. So I've made choices even recently where it's impacted me greatly financially uh, in, in the point where barely making it financially, giving up all kinds of opportunities, because ultimately I'm going to stand before the Lord. This life's very short, and I don't want to ever trade my faith with God so that I can work within some sort of system, denominational structure, whatever, whatever structure defines us. I agree with all of that. I agree with everything because it bothers me that we travel, Doug. We're, we live in our motor coach. We've been traveling now for over 10 years. We pop in and out of, we popped in and out of churches for a while. And then the more I popped in and out of churches, I got tired of the the mindset in most churches, I'll just say this, this is not all, was this is where God is. This is where you need to be. You need to be here 24 seven. We open up the doors, by the way, would you like to be in charge of the parking lot ministry? Because you seem like someone who's somewhat fit and you can get up early on Sunday mornings. And I only slightly joke about that. And yes, there was some sarcasm and cynicism in that statement. But, and I just started thinking to myself, I don't think this is correct. And, yeah. and so maybe, and maybe this is where you're at landing right now. I'm just, we spend a lot, my wife and I spend a lot of personal time. I, we are digging down into things that, that we may or may not have dug into spiritually with, you know, attending some type of structure and I'm pulling for the structure. I really do want the structure to work. I just yeah. Well, and here's the thing. Give I think about, it really is about, it, yeah, I think it's about relationship. For instance, I'll always be involved in a church community. That's just a calling thing for me. So the okay. moment I stopped pastoring, I was, I took a couple of weeks off just because I hadn't not gone to church for three weeks in 24 years. Like I pastored the same church for 24 years. So I was like, what does this feel like? But then that was a spirit led thing. If I were to put this in someone else, that would be me being an intermediary. And I don't believe it's my job to be someone's Holy Spirit. So for me, I prayed and we had brought into a community where now I go to this Lutheran church and it's not Pentecostal, but relationally, we know we're called to minister with those people. Because I talk about this in the book, Community of God. I don't think you go to a church like, how does this meet my needs? You go based on how can I minister in this community and be of value? So often you're called to places that don't have what you want. 
People used to leave our church because they'd say, oh, we love you, Pastor, but, you know, you just don't have enough for our children. Our children, we were, were concerned about their faith. And I wanted to say to them, oh, I'm so glad you're leaving. My kids have to stay here, so they're probably going to go to hell. But if you can escape, if you can just, it, that concept, and that's the American concept, that I need certain things to be okay, which is not true. You don't. And we all know that in relationships we've committed to. You commit to, there, there's boundaries in a marriage where there's reasons to divorce and there's reasons that you should no longer be with someone. But we all have this commitment thing that says the commitment is bigger than the, the difficulties, right? And then you learn to live within those difficulties. In, in olden days, you had two churches in town and they had a graveyard next door and people would get a plot next door to the church. No one would do that today because it would require a commitment that no one wants to make. Now, all kinds of problems with that. And so I'm not saying people have to commit for life to a community, but for me, that's the decision I've made. I think this is one of the biggest problems with the church and why we're seeing corruption. Well, this is just one of many. I see the documentaries as well. I have friends who have been hurt by the church. I, most of the people online, Christians I deal with, no longer go to church, have been hurt. But they'll say, but you're okay. I don't like any of those other pastors, but I'll talk to you. Um, I know like in the denominational setting I was in, no matter how you look at it, and this happens across the board, larger churches go into positions of power. Pastors of larger churches get platformed more. And we use church growth as an assessment for health. And the idea is if it's growing, it's healthy. Or we do this. If a church is growing, then if there are problems, we downplay those problems because we'll say, clearly God has blessed this church. So God wouldn't bless this church and allow for those problems. I saw that with Mark Driscoll in Seattle, and I'm not saying something out of, there's whole Christianity Today did a whole podcast series on him. I interviewed Mark. Uh, I tried to be very gracious and kind with Mark throughout his tenure in Seattle, even though he was very arrogant and is very arrogant. But I would see in Mark, my issue for Mark is he had growth as a young man. And I think he equated that growth where I must be blessed. And so then he minimized all his faults. Now, that could, those faults could have been 1% of his personality or 10% of his personality. It doesn't matter. Once you justify and codify and sanctify faults, and I call these satanic footholds, then incredible evil can occur. And if you look in most church corruptions, that's what happens. Well, well, he's a good guy and he's a good preacher and look at all the good he's done. And yeah, there was that accusation about women or yeah, he sometimes he has a temper, but you know, God's anointed sometimes, you know, the, the garbage that we use to justify. That is a problem in my own life. And it's a problem in any leader's life. And so we put a leader in a position. I think we even do this with our national leaders outside the church. I think we're going through seasons like that where we're seeing that people will justify depravity if they get what they want or if 80% of it is good or 90% is good. And we, that, is, that happens in structures. And then in structures where you then can't remove the person or the consequences. I'll even get at this. With with abuse in homes, sometimes people say, why didn't they deal with abuse? Like the, someone will talk about abuse. I had a friend who, when she was like 23, she talked about being abused when she was in fifth grade. And people are like, well, why didn't you talk about it earlier? Well, the moment she shared that, the family just fell apart because the abuse was in the family. Suddenly people knew about it and everything changed. And there were parts of that family that she didn't want to fall apart. And this is what happens in churches. Like, I like this community. I, we, there are good relationships. And I know if we confront this thing, this place is going to be devastated. I'm not saying this is a good reason to do this, but this is why people do that. 
and they wait, and then the foothill, footholds get greater, and the hidden is even more hidden than we realize. Uh, so that's the big stuff. The other stuff, just about an arrogant leader who's controlling people and all those money dynamics, all those praising people for growth. We need different measurements, I think. And I think they're more, and I think you and I have connected on this probably a lot through Twitter, is the spirit in which we communicate. That for me is everything. I, there, there was a presidential candidate when he was among 10 other candidates where I was like, I will never vote for this person based on his attitude, just his spirit alone. And I remember Christians going, he's not a pastor, he's a politician. If you think that depending upon your role, you can no longer be Christ-like or no longer be loving, then we're in trouble. And I think there's a part of the church like that. Well, if he's a leader, he can be a jerk in certain situations because he's a leader. And if Christ showed us anything, it's the exact opposite. It's he, although above all, he lowered himself and became nothing and the servant of all. So how many people want to be in leadership positions and be servant of all? That's probably another problem with any institution and structure. I thought I wanted to be a servant, but even there, there's an arrogance of, I get fed by, do you like my sermon? Do you not like my sermon? The ego is so so much in, intertwined in these gatherings that I think we need to at least have much more conversation where people can come in and say, hey, Doug, you're getting a little of this, and I don't cast them out of the church, or they don't fire me immediately. We need to have environments where we can have those discussions. I've always, I've been saying for some time now that I'm not sure that men, most men, can handle the mantle of leadership. Once it gets to mm. a certain point, it crosses over. Now, we don't want to go down this controversial path. I think women can handle it better, truthfully. But most men, we have a tendency, it feeds yeah. us, feeds us. Well, okay, really and why is that? Just say there's no gender difference. There, there might be. Let's just say there isn't. One of the things yeah. women have had to do for thousands and thousands of years is work with in situations where they didn't have power. They had to find ways to work where they weren't the leader. They had no authority in the culture. And so they found ways to figure out what's important and essential and what's secondary. Seeing this, women will work through in the church. They'll work through conflicts. They'll work through. They'll talk about because they've had to do that in so many settings. Men be the controller of their home, controller of their house, control it, right? The moment someone challenges, like when two men get in a fight, they both leave and no one ever talks to anybody again. They're just gone. So I think that is one of the reasons why a healthier, diverse expression within the church, and I do believe women should be pastors, but even if you didn't believe that theologically, you better have women in every role of being able to speak and communicate. And because I've found men tend to struggle more with the communication issues, often because they didn't have to. They could just go to role, they could go to position, and they could go to power. When you don't have position, role, and power, then you have to learn how to talk to people. And those are the kinds of people you want in positions of authority where they've learned how to communicate their emotions, to communicate their ideas, and not just be, I'm the boss, so take it, love it or leave it. Like they don't ever get to do that. And so they don't do it in the position of power because they found other ways to communicate. I love that you brought up. Is that too up, political? No, because that, I think we're about to go down there a little bit deeper because I want, I want to ask questions about it because I think it's very informative, the direction we're headed here. I love that you brought up the Mars Hill, the Mark Driscoll, and I guess I did know you were in that part of the country, and so you probably have some unique perspective, and, and it was really interesting. I'll also bring up one other situation that we became aware of. We, my wife and I, spent about nine months over in Australia and New Zealand back in 2014, 
And it was a very unique time. We were popping in and out of churches over there, and we popped in and out of about eight campuses of Hillsong. And we were there when um, when Brian Houston, it came out again, some issues with his father and some uh, pedophilia and different things like that with his father. And so we were there when he was addressing those issues. And I want to say it was very similar to what you just brought up, or at least it sounded that way at the time. I want to say that, that it sounded as if, listen, we're, we're trying to address this as best we can in light of this is an organization that we also want to keep it intact and not just blow it up. So that I'll, that's a little bit yeah. drastic yeah. the way I said that. But the reason I bring it up is, is I've seen situations, and I'm, I'm an executive coach. I work with leaders of organizations and things like that. So leadership is what I try to study and have some degree of knowledge of. My observation with Mark Driscoll or almost any organization that I see where someone starts what we'll call a startup or a church plant, and it begins growing, you use the word growth, and I'm sometimes wondering if maybe growth is something that we should be pursuing. It needs, it doesn't need to be the idol that we make it, but that's what we measure in our culture and society is how many people are sitting in the seats, what kind of money, what does the building look like, things like that. I perceive that at some point, let's just use, look at Mark, for example, that he was really pure of heart with what he was doing. It was building, 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 building. And somewhere along the way, it seems like something flipped and he moved into protection mode instead of what is God doing here mode. And I know that might be oversimplifying, but when I have run into struggles with leaders just that I work with or that I see personally, Doug, what I see is, is they've gotten in the mode of, I need to protect this entity, this organism, this organization. And I need to protect it at all costs. We're doing good. We're getting people baptized. We're, people are being healed. This is happening. Whatever it is. We're selling Apple watches. Whatever it is we're doing. And I need to protect it. I think that mm. is when things get pretty toxic and dangerous. What are your thoughts on that or observations? You could tell me I'm wrong. If you think I'm wrong, I'm okay with it. Oh, you're completely wrong. No, I think you're hitting right at some of those issues that really... Um, I would love to write a book on this. Of In Romans, the beginning of Romans, Paul says that one of the sins that humans did, and it's confusion. Is he talking about all of humanity? Is he talking about Israel? He says they worshiped and served the created instead of the creator. And some translations say the creature. But I think created works just with the Greek. It's just hard to know. It's like Dick and Jane language. There's not a lot of modifiers. You don't quite know what it says. But this image of humans begin to serve the created versus the creator. So we see that from the very beginning. What is that we've got Cain and Abel. And um, one understands that they get their provision from the creator. The other one is, I don't need the creator. Like this concept of Solomon is, gets wisdom. And what does he use his wisdom for? Uh, to pick up women. He, he like uses what was created. Moses, God has him bring water from the rock. And then he begins to realize, I can do this without God. And so he hits the rock and we go, what is that about? Why is God so concerned with that? They begin to use what was created in them and they use it for themselves instead of for the creator. We have David takes a census. And why does he take a census? Like at some level, 
God has done all this, but now he's worried, I got to control this thing and I got to see how powerful we are. And so whatever the reason is, he begins to serve the created. One of the worst things that can happen to you as a Christian, as far as for your faith, is you can have your prayers be answered. Because once your prayers are answered, you can serve the answered prayer instead of the creator. And I saw this again and again in 24 years of ministry. When someone is destitute, a drug addict, no one likes them, their kids have kicked them out, or their parents have kicked them out of their home, uh, they'll come to the church broken, have nothing, Jesus accepts them. Well, they get their life back in order, right? They get a job, maybe they get a relationship, and they get married, and maybe they have kids. And what you begin to see as God begins to create beautiful things in their life, instead of serving the Creator, they begin to serve the things that God has given them. They begin to serve the marriage over God, the kids over God, the money over God. I would say that's what happens with these ministries that grow. I don't want to just say they were always wicked, terrible people, and I, there are people who are just out there to try to swindle. But I think what happens is something happens and they see miracles and then they begin to see, well, look what I did. Or they begin to take it and be like, well, this is mine to do what I want with, or this means I have a special authority. And so they begin to serve the created instead of the creator. I think Christians need to understand this. Christians have a difficult time, let's say, with science. Science is the best example of God has created us. And now we have this amazing capacity as humans to do amazing things. What should the scientists do? Stop being a scientist? No, they should just thank God for that capacity. I thank God that he's given me this amazing mind to do these things. What happens sometimes in the scientific community? And God's dead and it's just about me and how great I am. So now we have Christians going, I don't believe those scientists because it's just all about, it's separated from God and versus like, I thank you for what they've learned and I'm going to thank God that God helped these scientists come with this cure or come with this vaccine or whatever those issues are. So if you look at all these issues of corruption, often it's, and Americans, why wouldn't the American church be corrupted is that we're very prosperous and the more prosperous we become, we begin to serve the prosperity. If you were to even argue that America itself is a sign of God's prosperity, so to me, nationalism is that kind of form of, well, we like this so much and we have these special gifts. We're just going to use it for ourselves and we're going to make sure no one else in the world gets it. If we truly are a blessed nation, then we've been blessed to bless all other nations. And so that would mean that whatever prosperity we have, it's for the purpose of sharing it with all peoples. Uh, but that's not how we talk about it. We're going to say, this is mine and I want this. We have so that nature of serving the created versus the creator. So I think that happened with Mark as you gain that power and that authority. The other thing I've seen with pastors, pastors, and this is, I bet you this is true of businesses as well. When you're very successful at the beginning, you do less assessing of what's wrong. You just try to maintain the thing. You just try to keep it going. And there's been like, things are going and they don't want to mess with anything. So it's just maintain. And I've seen this in businesses. I've seen this in but when you've not done well in the beginning, when you launch something and no one shows up and it's not successful in the eyes of anyone, including yourself, what do you do? Well, you begin to assess everything. And in assessment, you begin to also learn and mature. So what I would see of some of these leaders who had led these really large growing churches is I think they lacked spiritual maturity. And by the way, I've ministered, I've I don't know. I've interviewed hundreds of pastors, national leaders. I five years at a radio show. A lot of guys, even the last few years, that there's been a lot of prominence about them. And I didn't find a greater maturity in those people. And in fact, sometimes I found a simplicity, which I guess is okay. 
But these are the people that were saying, follow them, read their books. But I've found people who really didn't have to struggle with what a lot of other people had to struggle with. The children of Israel are not formed in the promised land. They're formed in the wilderness. And when we platform people who don't truly have wilderness experiences, they're kind of dangerous. And so my dad used to say this to me. He'd say, I get it that elders can be 20 years old. I understand the concept. God can speak through anyone. He said, but some of your elders got to be old because they've gone through this enough. They've experienced loss. They've experienced deaths, disappointments. And if they still love Jesus, then that person has some authority to speak. And I see that in a lot of the platforming of leaders. And then they, what do they do? They grow and then they get a conflict. And now they have all this stuff. They can't admit that they've been doing things wrong for the last 20 years. So then they justify everything. They, they don't grow as individuals. They don't. Even like we mentioned Mark earlier, and I get hesitant even because I don't want Mark Driscoll to set the agenda of another conversation. But I always talked as if Mark was in the room, and I hope I'm doing this even now. To me, Mark lost his authority, the authority he wanted to have impact, that no matter what he does in life, he'll always be seen as this person who harmed so many people and refused to reconcile. Because what he did in Seattle is they were putting him on a discipline process. The goal was to restore but he had to admit that he had faults, big faults. But instead of going through the process of reconciliation with the people who had hurt, he had hurt, he just left that and started something somewhere else. And that's going to happen again and again. So even there, the critique there is stop codifying everything you've done to this point. God lives in the eternal now. Turn to Jesus. Let him look at all the things that you know are broken. And this is the ideological part. Maybe this could never happen. But that's still my heart for him, not to toss him out, but for him to go through the process of reconciliation, which might mean he's never a pastor again, but at least he's in right relationship with the thousands of people that were harmed based on the ministry that he did in Seattle. I do wonder if sometimes we have people that they box themselves in a corner. You mentioned this. I think they get elevated, they get elevated, and then they look around and they go, hmm, I don't think I could do anything else. or yeah, yeah. I don't think I could ever have the impact or uh, I, people are going to find out that I'm a fraud or you know, we could just oh, yeah. run through the gap. I can't afford to leave the ministry. I can't do anything else. I can't. I know people who have different theologies than what they preach and they talk to me privately, but they don't feel like they'd be able to survive. And I've always thought of anything. I want to be in a position where I can turn in that if I'm going the wrong direction, I can turn. I never want to be in a place where I'm stuck. I have so much debt. I have so much whatever. Uh, now, maybe other people don't have that luxury, but you've hit it. They are even psychologically because they've been propping up a myth. Like not all of it's a myth, but they've been propping a myth that they're a good person, a myth that they're whatever it is. And they would have to come to true repentance. And how many people truly repent? And that part of cancel culture, like I believe people, pastors, can repent, but it doesn't mean they can be pastors again if they've lost the trust of the communities. I think that's what First and Second Timothy and Titus deal with. But I do think we do need to have space that people can talk about the darkness uh, without just being, you're the evil person we never talk to again. There must be a place where someone can say, I've been engaging in a behavior where I'm meeting, before it all falls apart, some way to be able, before it falls apart, whether that happens or not, I don't know. But I think you're exactly right. By the time they get to this place, 
They still should turn, but it's so hard to turn, to quit, to change because they've invested so much in it. And then also there's such a trail of darkness that they either have to justify it or they would just crumble under the weight of what they've done. Yeah, I think we've seen such, so many rare situations where number one, we've seen repentance. Number two, we've seen something that people would be restoration. I have never liked the six months away from the pulpit and then you're back in, you've gone through counseling. Here's the microphone again. You're so talented. You're such a great speaker. We've got to have you in the pulpit. That to me really just reeks of hypocrisy and you know, all types of things. But let, let's do that. I want to do this, Doug. I want to, because we can talk about the problems all day long. And I don't know that you and I know the solutions. However, e neither one of us are young bucks that are just getting started in life. We've kind of been around the block a few times. How old are you? I'm, you're not a woman. I could ask you that point blank. How old are you? Yeah. I'm trying to think how old I am now. I think I'm 52. I, I'm either 52 or 53. I was, those who can do math, I was born January 29th, 1972. And then you can figure that out depending upon when you're listening to this. But yeah. 1972, I'm trying to think of what was going on. I, I was born three days before JFK was shot. So, yeah. so I. So you're part of the conspiracy, is that? I was there and. Uh, you're in the. The grassy knoll <laughs> is. A there was a pregnant. Yeah, that's right. It was not. A none newborn of that child. Is, real and all that. But I think the thing I'd love for us to discuss here, Doug, with all this wisdom that we have here, I get the impression, tell me if I'm right or wrong, that you have quite a bit of experience. You've put a lot of thought into things. You really uh, are, are serious, even though we joke some about your spiritual walk, but you also don't believe that you know everything. If I'm incorrect on <laughs> any of that, correct me. Well, here, here's the deal. Put, hook up me to a lie detector. Probably my subconscious is way more arrogant than my outward. Like, but I know that my subconscious is probably a liar because it gives me crazy dreams at night and I shouldn't trust that guy. So there's a part of me that certainly has the arrogance of, let me give you my opinion because it's the most important opinion in the room. But I just, the nature of it is how could we remotely think that we understand the fullness of God or even you know, the, like that part, like how would I even begin to think I could say, here's the three things God does. Maybe there's four. It's just absurd. If I did that for you, if any person said, this is what you need to believe about Doug, just these are the four things about Doug. And we all unite around these four things. They would be wrong. Not one group on this planet, even if they gave me an Enneagram test, could not say, this is who Doug is. And yet the arrogance to unite around and just tell people they're going to hell because we think we have it all figured out. Now, I have strong opinions, and I will tell you that. And in some ways, I'm very much, you know, I believe the Bible's a sacred book and things that people will be like, ah, you're one of those conservatives. In fact, I take it all as God's word. And But then people go, they'll ask me to parse that out and what I mean by that. I go, I don't know what I mean by it. I just mean that I'm going to take this as the sacred book and it's God's fault if it isn't. Like, this is the book that I'm reading and this is the one I believe. And But the concept to think that you have it all figured out and I'm still growing and I'm still, and I think when you're in the center of God's grace, you can look at your life. And I think one of the reasons people don't look at their sins and their faults and the failings is they don't understand a gospel of grace. 
that I believe I'm in the center of God's grace. I'm not on the edge and I'm going to fall off, you know, out into the abyss of darkness and death. And if I'm in the center of God's grace and love, then I can say, search my heart and know me. And if there be any wicked way in me, reveal it. And that's another problem with these church cultures. If we don't have that conception, like I would say in our church, there's no super spiritual people. We all have the same amount of the spirit. There's no, there's no, we just do it. There's no super, I use fairly spiritual as a moniker I use. My website is fairlyspiritual.org. It's a play on words. People say, well, I'm fairly spiritual. They joke about that. But the idea is there's no hierarchy of spirituality. There's no intermediaries. Now, I got opinions. I'm going to share them. Do they connect with what God is talking with you about? Sure. But if you say, the reason I'm doing this is because Doug said it in a podcast, you're in trouble and I'm in trouble. So I don't believe that I have it all figured out. I'm still trying to be open um, <laughs> to help me, Lord, especially with my own life. I tend to be, I'm a little dissatisfied with man, Doug, you could grow in this. You could be a better husband. You could be a better father. And I don't want to be guilt motivated, but I know I have room for growth. And I've never met a person who didn't have room for growth. And the most scary people are the people who refuse to get help, the people who refuse to get prayer, the people who never apologize. Those are the scariest people. So I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to ever prop up a person, a leader, anyone who is just look at how I do it and do it my way. And I'm the model for success. I would preach messages where I'm pretty extemporaneous in how I preach. And I would say something and I'd realize I did it for the wrong reasons. Like you can say the right things for the wrong reasons and it's sin. It's in my opinion, this is the old time, it's sin. And I would say something and people might shake their head like, that's right. But I know I'm saying it because I'm upset about something that was done to me. And I'm saying it because I've been hurt. And I would stop in the middle of my sermon. I'd say, you know what I just said? I apologize for that. I'm sorry. No, I said that out of hurt. It might be true that people should do this, but I'm saying it because I'm bitter about some things that have happened in my life. And I, forgive me for that. Or, and people would come up afterwards and say, you didn't have to say that. That's true. People should be that way. But that's to me how God sees things. That the condition of my heart, the motivation of my heart, and the church that doesn't acknowledge that reality is in trouble where I can look good. Like in this podcast, it can be, I can fool you all. But God knows my heart. And in my heart, I've still got room to grow. I still have. And that, even that issue, like, I'll probably be thinking about, Doug, be careful. Do you talk about Mark Driscoll because you're bitter, because you're resentful, because you're, because no matter what, if you hooked me up to a lie detector that worked in this context, there's a part of me that is a little resentful. Shouldn't be, but is. He succeeded, I didn't. He got the platform, I didn't. You know what? It's still there. And I think as Christians, if we could acknowledge that duplicity in us, not only do we not have it all figured out, but there's duplicity. You can say you love someone, but also inwardly be like, ah, that person kind of bothers me. Like, we have to acknowledge that duplicity so God can minister to the whole person. If we don't, then we allow a part of our personality to be in isolation and in darkness, and then we're dangerous. So one of the things that is such a challenge in that arena is that we are looking, I don't want to say we're looking for a savior, but that, cause that's a little harsh. I think people are looking for saviors in the form of people, let's say mostly men. Yeah. And they're yeah. looking for that in the form of who's in the pulpit, who's head of my organization. If I'm in a company, who's the person sitting in my state house or my white house or 
things like that. And so one of the things that I think is causing our issues, and we don't definitely know this is causing the issues over on the social platforms, if we go down that yeah. path, is that we are looking for, I don't, even, I don't even know if perfection is the right word, Doug, but we're looking for people to look up to. I'm not sure that there are many people that we can. And then once we find who we think that person is, we latch onto them and we can see no wrong yeah. in them or things like that. And, and the reason I'm bringing all this up, and this is maybe something I want us to discuss here in the last few minutes we have, is that we're recording this in early 2024. I don't know exactly when it'll release, probably sometime around the next few weeks or something like that. This is an election year. And election years have a tendency to bring out the worst in some of the things we're talking about, and especially in the church world too, by the way, we're not, in fact, we're part of the problem, not necessarily part of the solution. And so one of the things I'd love to ask, Doug, is where are you landing now with how you gauge, I don't know mm. what the words, judge, filter, parse, whatever, leaders and what you see in others and how you determine who you really want to listen to and who you want to say, you know what, I don't want to listen to him. You've already said you're a peacemaker, so you're, I'm guessing you're not going to blast one person over the other. I would let one know that I disagree with them, but you more of a peacemaker, but how does someone navigate this environment that we're in, in a year mm. like we're in today? And I know, I know you don't know all the answers, yeah. but because I also get the feeling that you've been on a journey where two years ago, you did it differently than maybe you did it four years ago, that you did it eight years ago, that you did it probably growing up the way you did. Is that a, is that even mm. a fair question? Sorry. No, it's not fair. And how dare you? Uh, so I was raised in an interesting environment. My parents' favorite president was President Carter. So that can tell you we were in evangelical circles, but he was not liked by evangelicals. But I knew he was a Christian and I knew he wasn't acting. You know, he actually is a Christian, whether you I, liked his I, or not. I want, to pause, I want to pause you just to get context here. I grew up in the state of Georgia and we did not vote for Jimmy Carter. Yeah. And so... <laughs> My son's middle name is Carter. That's the, but I'm not, you know, I felt disillusioned that I often feel like there's no place for me to go. So I, as far as politically, it's been a struggle, but here's the, the issue is that this is a really hard thing to tell anyone. I have in the book posting peace, I have a ch chapter on when justice demands conflict. One of the struggles I, I don't, Christians will do this. They'll say, Let's say they did this with Trump. They'd be like, I'm a Republican. I'll never be a Democrat, but I don't like Trump. So I'm just not voting. And they'll see that as like a more virtuous thing. And it's not. It could certainly be a choice, but there's nothing more virtuous about that. And it's probably a sign that you have a level of privilege. Because if I probably will be least impacted of whoever's our next president versus other people will have severe impact, especially minorities, for instance. So for me to say, this is what you should do, just get along and don't worry about politics. And I don't have the perspective, you know, my, my Hispanic friends, you know, I don't, I don't, or, or any, and this doesn't mean that would go towards one party or not. It's just, so that's, I got to be very careful to come in and say, I found the solution to this. I'm pretty disillusioned, disillusioned by, but I, I think we're in a season of anything. A lot of people have called themselves Christian. We have an expression of cultural Christianity. And at some level, I think that is crumbling. And I'd like it to continue to crumble. I don't want the decimation of the church. 
But I think we're seeing a radicalization of people who call themselves Christians, that they're becoming more and more polarized and more and more political in the sense of, here's an issue between being political and partisan. And I talk about this in the book Posting Peace. Political is I have a political opinion. And if you're voting, you should have a political opinion. So if well, God will work it out, this is how God worked it out. He allows us to vote in our democracy, our republics. Being political is nothing wrong. Your views on gun control and whatever. Partisan is not a Christian virtue. Partisan is I want my side to win and your side to lose. I want it to be my country, not your country. I want it's not reconciling. Partisan communication, the goal is to destroy you. The goal is you're the idiots and we're the good guys. And that's what we're seeing, the extreme partisanship in our culture, where there's less and less people in the middle to say, how do we engage politically to solve problems across the aisle? As Christians, I think we should run away from any environment that is that reeks of partisanship in the sense of we're making jokes about those snowflakes or those. And you see this and you can listen to NPR and they all make a joke about the far right and you can listen to far-right people they're joking about, and they're not even Christian, or that we, do, we belittle their faith, we belittle... That is not Christ-like. I would never want someone to treat me this way, so I'm not going to treat them well. So that's kind of the process to me. I look for politicians, and there's, it's hard to know at a national level for that existence. I think one of the things I talk about in my book is trending local. If you're struggling with these national things, trend local. Find what's happening in your local community and get connected. And I don't mean just get connected with radicalized people, but get to know your mayor. If you're a small enough town, get to know him. I, the mayor in the town that I ministered for most of the years, we had different political affiliations, but he's my brother in Christ, and I love him. He's my friend. I got to know him as a real person. And small town, it's often not whether you're left or right. It's just whether you can get the roads paid. You know, it's just it's not the same thing. In fact, don't elect a small-time mayor who's just all partisan. You want a mayor who can get money to help you with the things that no one can pay for. But that's what I would help people who are so disillusioned. Maybe you can't even look at the national news. Find something local. You know, maybe go to the school board. It'll be hard. You go to the school board and maybe you'll see a lot of toxic stuff. And instead of focusing on the toxic stuff, find the one person in that school board who seems to represent your spirit and encourage them and say, how can I partner with you and what can we do for the future? So those are the things to me is find people at some level have the spirit that you have. Find a way to partner with them. And then I also have to believe, this is how I've been, this is how disillusioned I've been. Even if our entire nation's republic disappears, that God's still good and in control and I'm going to be okay. Because I cannot move forward believing that the health of my faith and the health of Christianity is determined by who's the next president or who's the next governor. I just can't do that. I have opinions about what will go better are worse. I am political. I am very much strong in my convictions, but there's certain contexts. To me, this is a context where I'm trying to facilitate an environment where Republicans and Democrats and Green Party and liberal and libertarians are all welcome. So I'm going to try to find a way to not just win a point that doesn't really help anyone. If I communicate something that maybe people together, that's one thing. But if I just preach to the choir and they're all like, yeah, we agree with you, Doug, I don't see any purpose in that. If it doesn't change anyone's heart, why do that? So instead, let's facilitate spaces where people of different political opinions can come together. I know we didn't talk much about that. I'm glad the book, but Posting Peace talks about that's the problem with our internet age. It's segmenting us into these, these environments that are radicalizing us. And we have to work against that to find ways to be in community, you know, not like-minded people, ultimately maybe like-spirited people with different opinions about the world.
Or I, like I asked you earlier, people that aren't so, I know the word dogmatic might be overused, but aren't so dogmatic. I'm concerned that we've got an entire culture, civilization right now that they don't know history because I'm sitting here looking at, by the way, I wasn't able to get through the entire book posting piece, but you wrote possibly one of my favorite chapters that I've read in some time. I think it was chapter six. It was one that I was able to read because you did two things. You combined two things. I think that was the right chapter. You told some great backstory on you. I think when you were sick, when you were in middle school and all that, and then you led into the Jefferson Adams relationship. I think did, but was both that the same chapter? Am I re that? Did I remember that correctly? Or I close? don't remember which chapter is in. You don't yeah, remember? Yeah. And I'm going, yeah. man. So I learned about Doug, and he reflected and showed what to me. I've read. I've read some things historically. That was one of the ugliest elections we've ever yeah. seen, which we can't even grasp that. People think 2020 was bad. They go, eh, I don't think you were around in 1800. And so I, I do think we just don't have concept or perspective. We're very narrow. We're, we think very selfishly of just ourselves and we don't try to look at other things. And I love that the message of what you had in posting Pete, and I believe you're doing this over on X Twitter is just, and maybe I'm trying to do it here. Maybe that's what I'm hopeful that we're having some conversations that people just don't have in other places. Mm -hmm. And maybe that'll help because I'm not excited about as we head into the rest of this year, truthfully. Yeah, no, I'm glad you, I think people are having these conversations, but they're not the dominant conversation at the Thanksgiving table. The extremists speak and the rest are trying to keep the family together. And I think we got to remember that. That's why we do need to have conversations like this. You can be like, what was this about? What were we really talking about? Is this about selling a book or my platform or your platform? I hope not. I mean, obviously, uh, if someone bought a book, I get $3 or something. But uh, here's the thing. By doing this, there's other people who feel less alone. We're less trying to change people's minds as there's other people like us. We're not alone in this. And they're like, oh, good, I'm not alone. And that's the danger. The danger is we begin to think that these extremists or extreme expressions is the expression. And that's to me, even people who came out of extreme churches, and then they think that's the church and they leave the church. They're like, that's the church. I don't like the church anymore. Okay. That was your experience with church, but now you're buying into the same deceptive logic. When you went to that church, your church was like, we're the church and we do it right. And everybody else does it wrong. And now you've left it and you're still letting them set the agenda for your life saying they're the church. So I don't go to church. There's other expressions. There's, by the way, if you went to a white church, just go to a non-white church. You'll find a different expression. Go to a poorer church. If you went to a wealthy church, go to a smaller church. If you went to a bigger church, go, you know, there's go to a high church, Catholic, Lutheran, whatever. Or if you were in that environment, go to where it's just uncomfortable people falling on the floors. Just there's a larger expression. So what you're doing here. And I know you work in this intersection, right? Even with these podcasts and the business stuff, the church stuff. Am I too churchy? Am I too business too? That's where we're all living in this incredible in-between place. And we need to encourage each other. I'm so glad what you're doing. It is needed. We need people in your space that you don't know how to define. I know you define yourself as a coach, but you're more than that. And it probably gets frustrating. What am I even doing? And how do I define it to other things? You don't have to. God defends your work. God defends your worth. 
You just do what he put on your heart and let him connect those things. So I'm doing that. You're doing that. People listening are doing that. And that's where that's how we're going to solve the problem. Be bold. Do what God's put on your heart. It doesn't matter if it fits in anywhere else. And by all means, stop being a jerk while you're doing it. <laughs> be kind. Be loving. Be reconciling. Christ-like, maybe even. That's my heart. And we can unite on Twitter or formerly Twitter, now X or threads or whatever we're going to next. We can unite based on these things. That's good, Doug. That's a good, that's a good capper here. Where can people find you, get, get your book posting piece? Like I said, I I've enjoyed probably two thirds through it. I want to circle back because anytime someone says they're a reluctant pastor in the title of your other book, I'd love to kind of read that and all, but where can people find yeah. you? And then I've got one more question before we wrap. Sure. A couple of things. One, if you just pray, if you're anointed, you'll find me. You'll just follow the glory cloud. No. This is what you can do. One, uh, fairlyspiritual.org is my more website. Than we're going to you... than... need more than that. We need some details. We need some Yeah, <laughs> for the non, yeah, for those of you who aren't spiritual enough. Yeah, fairlyspiritual.org or .com. Yeah, you can go to Doug Bursch. If you search my name, you'll find me. And I, I do interact on those platforms. I also have a bunch of books that I haven't sold because I'm not a great successful author. So if you have a church group or study group uh, and you contact me, I'm going to find a way to send you a box of books if you can pay for the shipping. I'm telling you right now, I just want to get those out there. I've given up on being the world famous author. Uh, instead, I'd like to just get the message out there. So contact me if you're like, I'm interested in this and I'll be glad to serve you. Very good. Hey, Doug, we are seek, <laughs> go create those three words. I'll let you choose one is my final question. Seek, go or create. Which one do you like right now and mm. why? I think create is the best way to truly bring something life-giving into this world. We become a, an assessment culture where fewer people are creating and we're just assessing the creating or we're aggregating the creating or retweeting the creating. So to create anything, a poem, especially art, a song, a book, doesn't have to be Christian. Just there's more creating needed. Right now, I'm trying to write a comedic novel, fiction. I don't know if it'll ever be published, but I just want to do that. And I think God's given me permission to do that. It's just not, there'll be spiritual elements in it, but the reality is I love the creative process. I, I think we can find so many things over just something new and real. And so I would encourage your audience, especially if someone's like, well, I have a book that I've thought it might do, or I might take up this. Just do it. Just start creating. It should have value in the doing, not whether it's a success. Just everything I do, I try to have value in the doing. I'm glad I wrote books, regardless of how many are sold. When you create something, I've tended, I never regret that. I do regret the things I didn't create, the things that I just, I let other people take my time and my energy instead of doing what was on my heart. So I would encourage people, you have permission to create. I like that, Doug. Thank you. I know I'm at my happiest when I'm in some kind of creating mode. And so I definitely agree with that. Again, Doug, thanks for joining us here. We are Seat Go Create, release new episodes every Monday. Your support means the world to us. Now you actually have the ability to tip us. You could buy me a coffee or offer financial support to our show at seekgocreate.com forward slash support. Contributions start at just a buck if you want to do that. And if you leave a comment, your comment could be featured on a future episode. Visit seekgocreate.com forward slash support. Thanks for joining us here. Until next time, continue being all that you were created to be. 
Let's take a short break from the show. Think about the leader you are today and the leader you want to become. Hello, I'm Tim Winders, your guide to personal and professional transformation. In my executive coaching sessions, we dive deep into what it means to be a truly impactful leader, one who leads not just with skills, but with vision and faith. Through my coaching, leaders have redefined their approach, achieving not just success, but also purpose and joy in their work. Are you ready for this kind of transformation? Let's explore your potential together. Schedule your free discovery coaching call at timwinders.com forward slash coaching. Your leadership journey is just beginning. Now back to Seek Go Create. 